This is the Visible Hand. My name is Jordi Blanes y Vidal. My guest today is Andrea Pratt, who is the Richard Paul Richman Professor of Business at Columbia Business School and Professor of Economics at the Department of Economics at Columbia University. Today we are going to talk about his paper, The Allocation of Authority in Organizations, a Field Experiment with Bureaucrats, which is joined with Oriana Bandiera, Michael Best and Adnan Khan, and was published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics in 2021. Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Jordi. Andrea, what does the allocation of authority mean? So the allocation of authority is one of the big questions that we ask in organizational economics. Who is has the right uh, to make a decision within the organization? That's one of the most important decisions that an organization has to make about itself. In this context, we ask it about procurement. We're interested in procurement because it's a very huge issue. In the average OECD country, 12% of GDP is devoted to public procurement. So it's a huge portion of the economy. And if we can make that more efficient, we can make a big difference to our economies. So in this paper, we are going to go into the details of how this like procurement process works. So there is going to be like essentially two agents, a procurement office and someone who is monitoring that. In some sense, the, the principal of this whole process is not going to appear as a, an active player in the paper itself, you can think that the principal is actually like the Pakistani tax taxpayer. Can we go back and think about maybe a situation that will be like a little bit simpler? Instead of having like two agents there, imagine that we have a more standard situation in which there is like a principal and an agent, and the principal is thinking, should I delegate that authority to take that decision to the agent? What will be the standard trade-off that people have studied in terms of this allocation of authority or delegation a decision? There's a traditional trade-off, an important trade-off between rule and discretion. So if you're a principal, you ask your agent to do something and you can be uh, very prescriptive in what the agent has to do. That's exactly how you have to do it. This is exactly how uh, what you have to buy for this. This is exactly how uh, you have to perform this task. That would be a very prescriptive rule-based uh, approach. Or you can have discretion. You can empower the agent to make a decision according to uh, their, their judgment. It's a trade-off because in the more controlled environment, the principal gets to limit potentially the misbehavior of the agent. However, by doing so, the principal also reduces the incentive of the agent to look for better solutions. And often the agent has knowledge of the problem. Also, the motivation of the agent may depend on how much uh, uh, freedom they're given. I want to establish this baseline situation. I know that your setting is going to deviate from it, but there are some elements in which your situation is going to touch upon this. I would like to go back to them uh, later on. As, as we said, this is a setting in which there's not going to be a principal. There is going to be uh, two agents, a procurement officer and a monitor. Can you tell us 
how prior to your experiment did the procurement system work in Punjab, region in Pakistan where you do your study? The procurement system in Punjab is has its own particularities, but it's very similar to procurement systems that are used all over the world. I have a lot of experience with the Italian procurement system, and uh, the one in Punjab is, uh, is quite similar. Basically, the system has two layers, at least two layers. One is a local layer. It's a person within a specific public body. It could be a school. It could be a hospital. It could be some kind or a branch of the public administration. That person, let's call him the procurement officer. That person is the one that uh, orders new purchases. So uh, um, the school needs five new computers. Purchasing officer is going to sign that order and is going to look for those computers in some way. Then there's a higher layer, typically, and this is a supervisory authority that checks whether the, the purchase is, is okay. And they check various elements of that. So in the case of uh, Pakistan, this authority is the Accountant General Office, AG. It's in the, the Pakistani case is interesting because these two authorities are very separate. The PO belongs to the provincial government, while the AG belongs to the federal government. Why do countries have this structure? They have it because they think that the oversight of the monitor is going to improve efficiency, reduce waste, reduce bribery. In fact, international organizations recommend this type of structure. So, so in some sense, when you were saying earlier that the standard trade-off involves rule versus discretion, the rules don't enforce themselves. There has to be somebody who is in charge of enforcing the rules, and this will be an actual person that is the AG in this type of situation. Let me push you a little bit more and in terms of going into the, the detail of the process, because, you know, I, I love the details in, in the papers. I think that very often the detail is where all the interesting stuff is going on. Let's imagine a procurement officer in a school, as you said, there is a teacher who says, we need more pens. We need, we need you to buy pens for this school. Can you take us through every step of the timeline of this procurement activity as it takes place in that school in terms of the involvement of both the procurement officer and the AG, the accountant general? Absolutely. Let me uh, first say one thing about what you said uh, previously. I think it's very, uh, uh, I like the way you put it, you say, you have an agent at the bottom, there are rules and these rules should be enforced. And so you put an agent on top of that agent, the, the AG, in order to guarantee that uh, procurement is done in the, in the, in the interest of, uh, of the citizens, the ultimate principle. However, that monitor is also subject to moral hazard. And so whenever you put an agent to supervise another agent, it's not clear that this is good because you're, you're adding moral hazard to moral hazard. And so it could be good or it could be bad. And, so, and, and I think it's this realization that uh, forms the core of what we're doing here. 
And it's also this realization that tells you why organizational economics is important to think about procurement, because procurement is this uh, multiple layers of agents and the relationship between these agents ultimately determines the efficiency of the procurement system. So one thing we, we learned and one thing that really motivates our, our research uh, is that we've observed a huge variety of performances in uh, public organizations when it comes to procurement. There are, there are a number of papers here and the, these papers, one thing that these papers always find is that uh, certain organizations manage to buy products and services at uh, low prices and other organizations manage to buy products and services at, at high prices. This is something that's been observed in lots of environments for lots of countries. There is a very a nice study run by in the UK by the uh, National Audit Office that looks at the prices paid for uh, yellow post-its by uh, UK public bodies. And it finds that uh, there's a huge variety there and some public bodies pay more for those post-its, for each unit of post-it, than what they would pay if they just went down to the corner shop and bought them one, one by one. So I think this is uh, this sort of dark matter of procurement is what we're all working around and we're trying to figure out what is that makes a difference and our our hypothesis is that uh, the organization of procurement matters a lot so we, with this in mind let me let me tell you how the process works so the process begins let's uh, think of, of a school uh, the process begins with uh, the school manager, uh, say the principal, identifying a need for uh, new products, say five new computers. Then the, what the principal will do is they will ask the purchasing officer to buy these five uh, computers and specify what they want. Sorry, just to be clear here, the principal is not the principal in economic models, ah, just, yes. just some regular person in a school. Exactly, yeah. exactly. The head teacher of the school. The head teacher of the school, yes. Um, and so then from now on, we have our first agent, the PO. The PO will survey vendors and order the goods. Now, uh, once the PO has identified what uh, the goods they want to buy, they send the request to the higher layer, which is the AG. So the PO will submit paperwork to the AG. The AG will look at the paperwork and they can either decide that that's not okay and ask for more paperwork or they can accept the paperwork, in which case they approve payment and the PO will pay the, the vendor. So that's the approximately the whole process. But just to be clear, the good has already been delivered to the school. That is, the procurement officer, like the children are not waiting there in need for computers until the AG approves the payment. But instead, the, the computers have been delivered, but the vendor hasn't been paid yet. And then the approval is uh, about the payment. Is that correct or that's not exactly correct? That depends on the good. It depends on the good. Yeah. We, we take into account delivery time when we evaluate the value of the good. The AG interferes in this process in, in two ways. One of them is asking for more documentation. Mm -hmm. The second one is rubber stamping the approval. 
correct? Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, these are two separate actions if you want. Yeah. It could be that that you have all the documentation, but I haven't bothered yet, you know, to to, to rubber stamp and, and, and approve it. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. And then you're, you're saying potentially the involvement of this additional agent in this process is causing some inefficiencies. What is the objective here? You already mentioned how come that certain offices in certain countries manage to pay less for the goods than others. Is that the objective here, to pay as little as possible for the goods? So uh, the, the idea is that uh, when, you, when you're thinking of purchase, there are two variables, quality and price. And what we're doing here is we're holding quality constant. So that because price is easy to measure and because we know that there are huge variance, there is huge variance in price for the same quality. Think about the, the British post-its. And so we, we think that that's a very important variable and we want to act on it. And I have one data point on that. So um, Oriana Bandiera, Tommaso Valletti, and I have a paper in the mid-2000s about procurement in Italy. And we have a variety of uh, products. And we look at the dispersion of prices paid by uh, different uh, uh, public bodies. And for every public body, we estimate a fixed effect, a price fixed effect. So how much they pay more than other public bodies. And what we find is that if everybody, if every public body in Italy had the same fixed effect as the public body at the first decile of efficiency, so if every public body in Italy had the, the same efficiency as the body at the 10th percentile of efficiency, uh, the Italian procurement, total public procurement bill will be down by 21%. So this is huge saving because uh, uh, public procurement in, in Italy is about eight percent of GDP. So we're thinking of, of a saving that's uh, you know almost two percentage points of, of GDP. So it's enormous. So if we can if we can do something about that heterogeneity, uh, and one thing we find in that uh, in that Italian study is that there seem to be systematic differences between public bodies. And they're not the ones we thought before doing the studies. Before doing the studies, we thought that, for instance, geography would be a strong determinant with uh, public bodies that are located in southern Italy doing much worse than public bodies that are located in uh, northern Italy. It turns out that's not the case. What we find is that bodies that are very centralized and bureaucratic do much worse than bodies that are decentralized. Of the order, it's of the order of 35%. So it's a very large number. Uh, so, so, so going back to the trade off that we mentioned at the beginning, I, I, I presume that the flavor of this finding is that this is consistent with rules leading to less efficiency than discretion. Is that what you have in mind? So that is something that made us think, let's, let's think about possible, possible policy solutions. Uh, and, and obviously, once you do that, you have to consider experimenting, finding something causal. And so when you think about the possible policy solutions, one is the one that's recommended by international bodies, which is putting more oversight. 
And uh, um, other people have recommended uh, actually empowering the public the procurement officers. This is work, for instance, by Steve Kellman, who um, was the architect of the reform of procurement in the U.S. under Clinton. Um, and other people have, uh, especially economists, have argued that the solution is to incentivize directly procurement officers, say, hey, if you can pay less, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a bonus. Uh, you know, holding quality constant, if you can, if you can save money, I'll, I'll give you some of, uh, some of the savings back uh, as salary. So that's what inspired us to do this, uh, this experiment. So as we mentioned at the beginning, the experiment is in Punjab, like a region of Pakistan. I mean, a region that is like enormous, <laughs> it has bigger than most countries in Europe or or almost every country in Europe. So you look at different administrative districts that Punjab has, and then uh, you take every one of these procurement officers and you allocate them to one of uh, four treatments in a randomized way. What are these treatments? So there's two uh, main treatments. One is autonomy and the other one is incentives. So incentives works as follows. We divide after, after six months, we split up procurement officers according to their performance into four categories, gold, silver, bronze, and the rest. And this is based on a quality adjusted saving index. So how little they pay given the quality of the goods they, uh, they bought. And then we provide the, uh, uh, rewards for the best performers. These rewards are very large. Uh, for the gold people, it's two months of salary. So you can imagine that uh, out of six months. So this is uh, this is quite a uh, quite a bonus. This uh, all this system is administered by a committee of people who are completely external to the administration. And we think, uh, we're pretty sure that there's no um, favoritism or corruption uh, going on there. And ultimately, actually, these rewards are, are ultimately almost automatically distributed on the basis of that uh, quality adjusted index. So two things I will say about this treatment. Uh, the first one is that the word large is really important here because I read a lot of papers about incentives and they they somehow never refer to this either explicitly or implicitly in terms of elasticities. But the elasticities are, are what we're interested in. If you give incentives that they involve very low stakes in monetary terms, then you're not going to expect anything, right? Like simplifying somewhat... These incentives are strong enough so that we should really expect big behavioral responses to them. That's correct. And let me add that uh, we have a, we run this twice. So we also avoid one other potential problem, which is lack of trust, because they could see, okay, this is a lot of money, but how do we actually know that? Uh, this weird uh, payment is going to occur. And so we first run it so that they see that uh, uh, top performers are getting the money and then we do the experiment. So the second thing that I wanted to say refers to this bit that you mentioned now, which is that in a paper in which the main conclusion is going to be that we need to worry about 
who is monitoring or checking things, you may worry that the fact that there are additional agents involved in this performance evaluation, you know, is worrying, or at least it's not automatic from the perspective of the people who are being evaluated. But you are telling us that essentially, even though even though notionally this is subjective performance evaluation, in practice it is objective because the committee is kind of following the, the objective rankings that you as an experimenter or researcher are giving them. Yeah, so basically what we were worried, we were worried about doing a completely mechanical system because we were worried that somehow the POs could find a way to game the system. I don't exactly know how, but it's a way. So that's why we left that subjective component, just to make sure to have insurance again. That it turns out that there wasn't an obvious way to gain the uh, quality adjusted index. And so yeah, ultimately, I think uh, that's just what it was used. So this is the, I said four treatments. So one of them is control, which is not yeah. obviously, you said they are too important. One and of these incentives, that one is autonomy. What does autonomy entail? So autonomy is completely different. There is no payment involved and it changes the process. That's the process I was telling you about is one where uh, the PO submits paperwork to the AG and the AG can say it's okay, it's not okay and ask for more. Now we do two main things in the autonomy treatment. First, we say payments below a certain amount, they can be done immediately without waiting for the AG's approval. That's one thing. The second thing is for the other orders, we force the AG to set out a list of requirements for the paperwork to be okay. And we force the AG to, if the AG thinks that the paperwork is not okay, we force them to say exactly what's missing and, and commit to accepting the paperwork once that uh, uh, those items are provided. So this, uh, uh, this was done by talking to POs in order uh, that they told us that that would make the biggest difference. So what does it do? There is anecdotal evidence that the AG uses the oversight process as a uh, chance to extract rent from uh, the purchase. And the ability to hold up the process is what allows the monitor to do that. So the autonomy treatment reduces that, uh, that ability. So the autonomy treatment has two parts. The first part uh, for balances below uh, $1,000, I think you said. That's clear. That essentially is equivalent to removing the AG completely. Instead of having two agents, now we have only one agent. Okay, that's, that's easy. The other one is a little bit more complicated because the AG is still involved. I was wondering about the following alternative treatment, you know? Imagine that you had a treatment in which you told everybody, the AGs can still ask for more if they want to, but the uncertainty about what were the documents that were required is removed because as a central authority, I'm telling you now, I'm providing, you know, more 
certainty, more confidence about what are the documents that typically should be expected. I'm wondering whether this treatment will be along some dimensions, similar to the autonomy treatment that you have here, because even an AG that is not corrupt may be unsure about how to do their job properly, you know, about about how they are expected to monitor properly, or whether they should go like the extra mile and ask for every single possible document on earth, or whether a basic checklist is, is enough. And in the absence, you know, of certainty about it, they may go the extra mile, and that's maybe inefficient. Maybe that that treatment of providing information to AGs will be on some dimensions equivalent to the autonomy treatment that you have here. Yeah, so I, I think the, the way I agree that this the, the treatment you propose is as, as kind of half the component of this treatment, and it will be interesting to experiment with, uh, with that as well. But the conceptual framework we have in mind is one where there are two agents here a monitor and an agent. And the key idea is that both of them can be uh, good or bad. And we call this aligned or misaligned. So an aligned agent is one who just wants to do what's best for uh, the citizen. And a misaligned agent is one who has uh, some some moral hazards, some interest there. So the, the idea is that this is a structure where the the agents operate in sequence and first the agent goes and then the the monitor does two things the monitor can add a bribe to the bribe that's requested by the the agent or the monitor can discipline the, the agent and so when you have this model Ultimately, it's everything is summarized by two parameters, how aligned the agent is and how aligned the monitor is. And there, the, our predictions on the treatments depend on those two parameters. So our prediction on the autonomy treatment is that the autonomy treatment can be good or bad. The autonomy treatment is bad when the monitor is more aligned than the agent. So you have an honest monitor, a dishonest agent, you give more autonomy to the dishonest agent, this is gonna be bad. If uh, the two agents are actually both dishonest, then actually autonomy is a good idea because it's better to have one bandit rather than two. The predictions for the incentive treatment is different. So the incentive treatment is never bad in our model because it always gives an incentive to the agent to behave well. However, the effect, the size of the effect depends on how misaligned the monitor is. Because if you have an aligned monitor, then everything the agent says goes to the citizen. If you have a misaligned monitor, if the agent tries saving something, the monitor will just sort of grab it. So our prediction for that is that with a misaligned monitor, the incentive treatment will have a very low effect. With an aligned monitor, it will have a strong effect. Let me say a, a couple of things 
before commenting on this like a conceptual framework, there is an additional treatment which is the sum of incendies and autonomy in the experiment. Okay, so these are just just to complete, you know, these are the four uh, control plus autonomy incentives and both. <clears throat> then you have like a, a very stylized theoretical model in which obviously you have two agents. It would be great if both of them were aligned. <laughs> If they are not both of them aligned, you want to give the authority to whoever is the most aligned. The incentives are incentives on the agent, not on the monitor. So therefore, they are going to help to the extent, to the extent that the monitor doesn't have the authority and is not interfering because otherwise you are giving incentives to an agent that is powerless and therefore that's not going to be. Now, I want to move a little bit beyond the, the model, which, as I said, is very stylized and everything, and think about what does misalignment mean here in the specific framework of Punjab, you know? Like, misalignment for the procurement officer is very easy to understand. You refer to misalignment as coming from both like an active perspective and a passive uh, perspective. So. So if I am like a procurement office in a school and I need to buy some post-its, I can go to the shop around the corner and say, unless you give me a, if you give me a bribe, I will buy the post-its from, from you at a higher price than I could get them somewhere else. Okay, that would be like a corrupt agent or, or an actively misaligned agent. That's easy to understand. You also refer to a misaligned uh, agent as a, as a passively misaligned agent. That would be an agent who is lazy. The agent has to buy some post-its. So I go to the first place that, that, that I can find. This is the corner, the corner shop that maybe has higher markups than somewhere else. That's terrible. I understand it. Now, in terms of the monitor, it's not so easy for me to understand what a misaligned monitor is, both from an active and from a passive perspective. So imagine that I am like a corrupt monitor and you were saying earlier, there's anecdotal evidence that they're extracting rents and everything, but how does this work, right? I am a monitor, I'm supposed to approve the checklist and, and rubber stamp the documents. Imagine that I want to extract rents what do I do? Do I pick up the phone, call the school and tell the procurement officer, unless you bribe me, I'm not going to approve your request? Because the procurement office in the school, you know, probably is very poor. They don't have really like the ability to bribe me so much. Then from a passive perspective, I am thinking that the days on which I am lazy, I kind of say yes to everything. <laughs> you know, I would expect that, you know, like a, a passively misaligned monitor just does not ask for more documents, but instead rubber stamps, because rubber stamping is much easier than getting into like a back and forth of documents here and there. So what is your idea in Punjab of how a misaligned monitor works. But I, I mean, unfortunately, we don't have uh, the kind of direct ethnographic evidence on this. It's very hard to, to get it. For active waste, the veto power of the monitor is what counts. When you give uh, an agent veto power, you give them the option of holding up uh, the decision until they're paid. And, and so that could be a natural channel to get these bribes. And of course, once there's bribes, these, they will be incorporated in the initial price because the 
seller will want to be uh, compensated for, for that cost. When it comes to passive waste, my experience is that delay is a huge component here. Uh, I think this is an experience we all have with uh, bad administrators. They're they're late, they're slow, they let uh, work accumulate. They're afraid of making decisions. And so this is uh, one possible form of passive waste that would uh, show up there. And when you have uh, such uh, administrators, then companies will incorporate the cost of the delay in the price. In many countries, including Italy, companies that work with the public administration, they keep complaining about being paid very late. And they keep complaining that this adds to their cost. And so they will want to uh, incorporate that in the initial price. I know that you have been editor of journals. So let me use an analogy here that is really painful, <laughs> close to my heart. You are thinking of a passive misaligned monitor as a, a terrible referee who is late and anyway rejects the paper for completely you know, like a silly reasons to avoid having to read the paper and then getting into the detail and having a, you know, to actually do the work. That would be like your analogy. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's a good analogy. Good. So now the dependent value, you're going to run some regressions that are going to have prices on the left-hand side to see whether you are getting like value for money in this procurement process. And then essentially the assignment of these procurement officers to each of the four treatments that we mentioned earlier, you have, you know, like a alternative set of ways of computing value for money or prices. Some of them are more basic, others are more sophisticated. Let's just say for the sake of the argument that this is fine. I mean, not just for the sake of the argument. <laughs> this is fine. What is it that you find? On, on, on value for money, the, the way we compute it is, is relatively uh, simple. These are, we have 25 categories of goods and these are very, very boring goods. They're very simple. It's stuff like printing paper. So the characteristics of the goods are very limited and typically there are very few producers. So we can really isolate the, the characteristics of the product. And then because we have a lot of observations, I believe around 20,000, we can, we can get a lot of observations just for exactly the same, uh, same attributes. We do it in many ways. And so we feel quite confident that we control for quality. Uh, in terms of what we find, so the first result is that the autonomy treatment Remember, the autonomy treatment could have gone in both directions. It could have produced a big saving if the monitor is more corrupt than the agent, sorry, less aligned than the agent, or it could have uh, produced a, uh, an increase in the price if the monitor is more aligned than the agent. And what we find is that there's a 9% saving. So that this is a large number. This is a large number. It's equivalent uh, in our small sample. It's equivalent to uh, funding five new schools or 75 uh, hospital beds. So it's a, it's, it's a sizable number. Regarding the other treatment incentives, we find a small but not significant price reduction. So it's, uh, it's basically a null effect. So just purely on the basis of these two results, the immediate conclusion, or at least the, the, the preliminary conclusion, would be that in the current system, the AG 
has the power, therefore incentivizing the agent is not having any effect almost at all. Whereas the treatment of removing the power from the monitor and giving it to the agent is having an effect because the agent is relatively less misaligned than, than the monitor. That would be, at this point, the initial conclusion. Yes, and we can go further than that because we have uh, 26 AGs. And we can remember one of the predictions of our model is that it all depends on whether how aligned the AG is. And so we estimate the alignment of the AG in the following way. If you were a corrupt AG, what would you do? You would hold out on paying. You would negotiate and have a threat. And now there's a very important negotiation point, which is the end of the year budget, which is in June in Pakistan. And stuff that hasn't been concluded then is sort of uh, uh, runs into huge bureaucratic problems. So you have a big threat point there. Notice that this would also be applied to passive waste because they would just be, uh, they delay until they can. And so we're looking, we're categorizing AGs according to what percentage of their purchases are approved in the last month, kind of at the last minute. And we think that those AGs are less aligned than the others. And so once you have that, you have two groups of AGs, the ones that are more aligned and the ones that are less aligned. And what we find is interesting for both treatments. So if you look at the incentive treatment and you look at the aligned AG, the incentive treatment actually has a significant and negative effect. Procurement officers save money if they have an aligned AG. Instead, procurement officers who have a misaligned AG don't save money. They'd say it's a 0% difference. For the autonomy treatment, it's the other way around. The autonomy treatment works super well if you have a misaligned AG. In that case, the PO will save 20%. If instead they have an aligned AG, they save 0%. There's no effect. So I think this really points to the, uh, to the mechanism we've uh, outlined before. The optimal organization depends on the relative alignments of the two agents. Let me start by repeating what you had said, but in slightly different words. You had like a theoretical framework that was giving you the prediction that the authority treatment will be relatively uh, more effective the more misaligned the monitor was. That framework was also telling you that the incentive treatment will have a stronger effect the more aligned the monitor was. Yeah, so now you want essentially to repeat your very simple regression that you ran earlier, in which price was on the left-hand side and the assignment to the four to the four treatments was on the right-hand side, but now with an interaction. You want to interact those treatment dummies with a variable that captures how misaligned the monitor is. Now, if the monitors, the AGs, had tattooed in their foreheads, whether they belong to one group or another, then that will be easy, right? You just create a dummy, interact, that's easy. Unfortunately, they don't. 
or fortunately, I guess, from a, an aesthetic perspective for them. So you want to have some type of proxy for this. And you said, well, we can use the fact that there is some type of like a idiosyncrasy about the procurement process in Pakistan, which means that if you don't use all your budget by June, you lose it, you know, to, to get at this, uh, at this proxy. Now, I said all this because I want to understand uh, more deeply why is it that this proxy works. You said or we have been discussing that there is like the potential for misalignment from an active that is corruption and passive that is inefficiency or procrastination way. Now, from an active perspective, I am wondering why delay to June is a proxy for misalignment because this is not like a one-off game between procurement officer and monitor. Like imagine that the, the monitor is saying, unless you buy from my preferred vendors who are the ones who are paying me a bribe, I am going to not approve, delay, and so on and so forth. Then in equilibrium, that, that like, that's a, you know, out of equilibrium threat, but in equilibrium, the procurement office will have learned this by now and then just go with whoever is the preferred vendor, pay higher prices. But there shouldn't be like a translation into, into delay. Then from a passive perspective, I wonder something similar, which is that this seems to be a very efficient, inefficient agent. That is, is somebody who is happy to procrastinate, to delay, and so on, but not beyond June. Remember that June is, is a threat for the procurement officer. That is, it's the procurement officer who is losing his budget beyond June, not the AG. The AG doesn't really care about going beyond June because he doesn't need the budget for the following year. So it's, it's like a, an inefficient agent, but somehow it's internalizing that choke point that happens in June. So it seems that maybe the mapping between your your variable and, and, and the misalignment is not as obvious, at least from my understanding of how the system works. But of course, I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be corrected. I would like to know what your you know, deeper thinking was about this. Yeah, so this, this variable has been used in the US. By the way, we didn't invent it. It was invented by Liebman and Mahoney, uh, who used it in, uh, in the US. And it is definitely a symptom of a system that doesn't work uh, if everything is uh, approved at the last possible minute, because it's, uh, it's definitely a symptom of a system that accumulates unneeded delays and then makes the decisions at the last minute. Why they do it, we as as I it would be it would be interesting to to do that. But we ultimately the empirical test of this lies in looking at the correlations and seeing uh, whether it can explain the the treatments. And so we find that that this is correlated with the with the treatment effect. And and of course it's not a smoking gun. But I think it's something that can help us interpret the results. And it is consistent with the mechanism methods we found. You actually have also like additional regressions to see how delay itself is affected by these treatments. What do you find there? We find that the autonomy treatment has a very positive effect on that, meaning a drop in delays. And it's all driven by a reduction uh, by ineffective monitors, the ones that had a lot of delays. 
And yeah, I, I should also say that this is something that has changed in the last um, in the last version. And we also use another uh, strategy. We just look at uh, delay in general rather than bunching in uh, at the at the end of the year. So I think in the paper you have both. Yeah, yeah, we have both, and they they point in the same directions. Uh, the the second one was uh, was added in the very last version. So you find that the autonomy treatment leads to a decrease in delays and that this comes mostly from the type of monitors that you were identifying with your proxy as uh, being particularly likely to approve everything in June. So I guess that the interpretation here will be that the inefficiencies that were somewhere in the system creating these delays are removed you know, by like, if, if you don't want to call it misalignment, call it some type of inefficiency or something, it's a proxy for something that was not working and uh, creating delays at the same time as it was increasing prices. And indeed, uh, one uh, limitation of this study is that we cannot tell whether it was active or passive waste. We don't have anything that helps us distinguish whether this happens because our monitors are, are getting bribes or just because they're being inefficiently slow. Uh, it's always very hard to get that because bribes are by definition hidden. So I think this is one area where future studies should, uh, future work should try and understand whether it's more active or passive waste, because this is also interesting for, for policy. If I think of this uh, about passive waste, and going back to the discussion at the beginning in terms of like rule versus discretion and how this new checklist of documents, you know, is playing a role here. So there are two, two elements of autonomy in the autonomy treatment. The first one is that the agent gets autonomy, which on a one-to-one -one basis must mean that the uh, monitor loses it. But it also means that the monitor is provided with a checklist of documents to approve, which means that even in the absence of the agent, the monitor is losing autonomy relative to some unknown principal who, you know, is overseeing everything at the same time. Right, so autonomy uh, from the perspective of the AEG is lost along, if you want, these, these two dimensions. Yeah, and, and so one question is which one, uh, which of these two policies is more is more important uh, in determining the 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 effect. Because going in terms of policy, I guess that the most obvious conclusion from the paper is in terms of the debate that you mentioned at the beginning about whether providing incentives or creating a very sophisticated bureaucratic oversight, the answer from the paper should be mostly neither of these two things. What you should do is provide less bureaucratic oversight. Then if that is the case, maybe incentives can work, but already providing less bureaucratic oversight, giving more discretion to these officers, that in itself, as a first order effect, will help. Is that like the main conclusion of the paper? I would say no. I would say that this is not a paper against oversight. It's a paper about a different kind of oversight. So the current form of oversight is exempted and it's purchase specific. So every time the PO makes a purchase, they need to ask for authorization. 
that this is not the way many firms, many private businesses do procurement. Notice that private firms have the same misalignment problems. They have the same corruption problems. You can offer money to a uh, purchasing officer or firm to, to buy your product. However, typically private businesses use a different approach. They use an exposed approach. So they let PO make purchases and then the oversight comes at the end of the year. You look at the PO, you look at the purchases the PO uh, has made and you evaluate them and you see if they've done uh, well or not. So in our experiment, it would correspond to removing the AG's ex-ante ability to hold up the purchase and asking the AG at the end of the period to perform an analysis of of purchases and reward the good POs and punish the bad ones. Our experiment shows that we would get a double good effect there because we would get the effect of removing, leaving the the autonomy, but we will also get the effect of uh, providing incentives uh, uh, without the risk that the uh, monitor um, gets the money. Anything else that we have missed that you want to mention? My main message is actually in terms of uh, the importance of organizational economics. Procurement, or or at least, let let me put it different. My main message is about what organizational economists can contribute to the study of public procurement. Without us, public procurement is analyzed as a very simple process. We organizational economists understand that there's an organization behind that and the structure of the organization, the allocation of authority will matter enormously for the efficiency of the process. So I think we have a, uh, uh, an important role to play in, in this problem and in other very important problems in public economics. Let me second that, but say it's in a slightly different way, which is that the details matter a lot. Uh, I think that... An advantage of organizational economics is that we care a lot about the detail, how things are actually structured and who is supposed to do what and uh, and who goes first and then who has to move afterwards with what information and so on. I think that in many of these things, as you said, moving beyond the simple process to understanding the detail is really what is going to add value in, in providing good prescriptions yeah, to policy. The interaction between the allocation of authority and incentives. We have some principles that the agents that are allocated the authority should also have the right incentives. What happens in procurement is we allocate a lot of authority to monitors and we don't provide them incentives. This is not going to work. And I think an organizational economist will see that quite quickly. Uh, and and we can, this is something we can contribute to, uh, to this field. Wonderful. Thank you, Andrea, for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>